Our second reading this morning is uh, from Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. Hear the word of God. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you be present here uh, in our midst, and we pray that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds uh, to your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be alive and active, uh, illuminating our minds, even as it was alive and active in inspiring this scripture. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Becca Joe, can you slide me back just a little bit? I'm hearing myself so much that I don't want to hear myself anymore. Okay. All right, this is, I think, uh, number six, number seven uh, in, in my series of sermons uh, on the doctrine of providence. Next week will be the final series in that sermon. Uh, and I've really waited this long to uh, address what I think is probably uh, the most uh, troubling aspect of, of this doctrine, and so we're going to take that uh, head on this morning. Uh, the title of this sermon is, Sin Enters God's Creation to the Praise of His Glorious Grace. If there is a God, and if God is all-powerful, and God is good and loving, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? It's a question known as the problem of evil. And thinkers have wrestled with this question throughout the, throughout the centuries and smart young people begin to ask this question in their teens, if not sooner. If there is a God and if God is all powerful and God is good and loving, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Logically speaking, there are a limited number of solutions to this question. One solution would be that there is no God. Some people come to this conclusion. At least I have met people who claim to be atheists and they say things like, I can't believe in a God if there, you know, are innocent children who suffer. They see the evil and the suffering around them and they conclude, since there is so much evil and suffering in the world, there cannot be a God. That's one solution. But as people who trust the Bible, that obviously isn't a solution that we can adopt. A second solution is to say, there is a God, but he's not good or loving. 
The pagan religions of the ancient world certainly did not think that the gods were good or loving. Zeus and Thor and Tiamat and Baal and Marduk, these guys certainly were not good. They were powerful, for sure, but these gods were self-serving, they were capricious, they were largely indifferent to human suffering or to uh, humans at all. They really didn't care about people. Even the people who worshipped these gods would have admitted that. Greek mythology does not present the Olympian gods as if they were moral examples. They are powers to be reckoned with. And the purpose of pagan religion is to gain favors from God so that the God might use their uh, powers on your behalf. You give the God some sacrifices and you hope that that the God then in return gives you the things that you need. You know, maybe uh, a victory in battle or some uh, crops. Religion in the pagan world is a business arrangement between humans and the gods. And each side of the business arrangement acts in their own self-interest. The idea that that God is good and God is loving, well, that idea first appears in the Bible. It is a unique idea in the history of the world. And since we have staked our hope on the biblical revelation, we're going to stick with the idea that God is good. So the second solution to the problem of evil is also one that we cannot adopt. There is a third solution to the puzzle, and that is to say, yes, there is a God, yes, he is good and loving, but no, he's not all-powerful. There simply are some things that God cannot do, there are some things that God cannot fix. Strange as it sounds, that's the solution that Rabbi Harold Kushner came to in his best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I'm going to write a book, by the way, when I retire, When Good Things Happen to Bad People, All right, which is more of what really goes on in the world. It may not be a bestseller, though. Kushner personally had faced terrible tragedy uh, in his life. And so he knew the reality of suffering. But he also believed that God was a good God. And so the only solution that he could imagine was that God was good and that God was there, but that there were certainly were, that there were simply were certain kinds of problems that God couldn't solve. Some things were beyond the power of God. Now the problem with that solution is that it's not what the Bible says. The Bible is clear that God is all-powerful and that God is capable of doing whatever he wants. The Bible is clear that God not only made the world out of nothing, but also that God governs the world that he made, that nothing happens in this world without his permission down to the level of the individual hairs on your head and the little birds that fall out of the sky to the ground. And so these three solutions, there is no God or God is not good, or God is good, but he's not all-powerful. These three solutions are not options for us as Christians, and that means we need to dig a little bit deeper. The Sunday school answer to the question of why there is evil and suffering in this world is simple enough. It's summed up in what we call the fall. Adam and Eve sinned. They broke a commandment given by God to test their obedience. And as a consequence 
A whole bunch of suffering was added to the world. God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We see here that pain is added to the pleasure of sex. And we see the beginning of the battle of the sexes. Two quick notes here. First, there are only two genders, only two sexes. And both of them are God-given. And no, you cannot change yours. You can change your name. You can change your pronouns. You can change your clothes. But you can't change your gender. A dude in a dress is still a dude. And secondly, patriarchy, the he shall rule over you bit, patriarchy is a result of the fall. It is not part of the design of creation. And when Christ returns and all things are restored, the battle of the sexes is going to be over. Now to the man, God says... By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Work, which is a God-given blessing, work which we were created for, work in the fall becomes a drudgery. That's why we hate getting up on Monday morning. And after we spend our lives tilling our fields by the sweat of our brows, one day we just fall down into the field and die, and we turn back into the dust that we've been tilling the whole time. Ah, but when Christ returns and all things are restored, labor will no longer be a drudgery and death certainly will be no more. Now, in addition to those consequences of the fall, there were others. The first couple got thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Their easy, intimate relationship with God, getting to walk with Him in the evening in the, in the cool of the, of the garden, that relationship is broken. And already in the first generation after Adam and Eve, we see that sin begins to infect the whole human race. And it's just all over the place. And it's causing death and destruction. So the young person encountering these stories will then ask the next logical question. Unfortunately, we get educated out of asking the wise question of children the, the children will ask the next question, well, why didn't God uh, prevent that first sin? If the sin of Adam and Eve caused so much suffering in the world, and if we're still suffering because of what they did so long ago, why didn't God just intervene and prevent that sin? And the answer that you hear most often to that question is, well, because God gave man free will. And with free will comes the possibility of sin. I think that answer comes mostly from people who have a very high opinion of freedom of the will. I think we Americans in particular, I think teenagers in particular, like this answer because it regards so highly our own personal freedom. The only problem is is that that is not what the Bible says. Because what the Bible says is, is that yes, God could have prevented the sin of Adam and Eve, if he wanted to. It remained an option. Just because God gave Adam and Eve free will didn't mean that God was forced 
to let them sin. And here's my proof text. Genesis chapter 20, verse 6. God speaking to Abimelech. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Abimelech certainly had free will. But God prevents Abimelech from sinning. God could have prevented Adam and Eve from sinning too. And so this brings us to a harder truth. Maybe a truth that we will want to run away from, but it is the biblical truth. The harder truth is is that God's plan for His creation, God's plan which was made according to God's sovereign and all-knowing will, God's plan included permitting Adam and Eve to sin. God's plan for His creation included the fall. God's plan from all eternity was that his perfect creation would be infected by sin. And I know that sounds horrible. Because God hates sin. Because sin dishonors God. Because sin destroys people. Even so, God planned from all eternity to permit sin to enter his perfect creation. And that's because... God's ultimate aim in all of creation was to display the glory of His grace. And that grace reaches its highest point in the suffering of Christ for the salvation of sinners, which in turn raises up for God a holy priesthood of redeemed sinners who will be singing His praises for all eternity. Now listen... The angels who have not fallen are in heaven singing the praises of God. But the real noise in heaven is going to be all of us redeemed sinners. Because we are the ones who know how good we have it and how far we have come. We are the ones who are going to be knocking the plaster off the ceiling of heaven with our singing and our shouting. All to the praise of His glorious grace. But if God allowed Adam and Eve to sin, if God could have prevented them from sinning and saved the world from the fall, doesn't that make God the author of sin? Well, the simple answer is no. But let me give you a more long-winded answer. We can think about the sin of Adam and Eve the way we think about the sin of the brothers of Joseph. Because of their jealousy, because of their envy, because of their covetousness of the favor that Joseph enjoyed in his father's eyes, Joseph's brothers first wanted to kill him, but then realized, oh, we can actually make some money off of this guy, and so they sell him as a slave. You might recall from our sermon a couple of weeks ago that the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, And the last of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet, are in fact the same commandment. For when we covet, when we desire what is not ours, we are saying that God and His provision for us is not good enough. 
Our covetousness is a sign of our discontent, our dissatisfaction with God's provision. It is a slap in God's face. By violating the Tenth Commandment, the brothers of Joseph violated the whole of God's law. They sinned as deeply as you can sin. But what does Scripture say about that sin? What does Scripture say about that sin which God planned for and permitted. What we read in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 is this. The words of Joseph. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It was a sin for the brothers. But it was a blessing from God. Now let me clarify because sometimes we misread this verse. Let me tell you what the verse does not say. The verse does not say, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God used it for good. As though God makes lemonade out of lemons. As though God was caught by surprise by a bad situation and redeemed it and brought something good out of it. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That means God, in his mind, intentionally and willfully decided that Joseph would be sold as a slave. And the sale of Joseph by his brothers as a slave was part of God's plan. Hard truth. The intention and the act of the brother was wrong. It was selfish. It was covetous. It was evil. It was a sin. But the intention and the act of God was good and it was saving. For by the sale of Joseph into slavery, a whole people were saved. Some of you sitting here this morning have been the victims of the sins of other people. We don't have to sugarcoat that. Some of you have suffered because of terrible things that other people have done to you. Sinful things. But if you are in Christ then even those terrible things are part of God's good and perfect plan for your blessing. That's a hard thing to say, but Scripture is clear about this. It was not pleasant for Joseph to be a slave. And once he was a slave, Joseph surely prayed every day that he would be released from slavery. It was a hard thing. It was the result of the sin of his brothers. But it also was, in God's plan, a very great good. The sin of Adam and Eve was not inevitable. But it was part of God's intention and plan. And, at the same time, it was a genuine sin. Like the brothers of Joseph, Adam and Eve were not content with God's provision. God had given them every single plant in the garden to eat. All of it was good. But the one thing that God forbid them to eat as a test of their obedience, that's the one thing that they had coveted. If God hadn't forbidden that one tree, they probably would have ignored it. If God had, And by the way, there's nothing intrinsic in that tree that meant that it needed to be forbidden. God could have forbidden anything. He could have said, oh, you're not allowed to, you know, rub your 
stomach and pat your head at the same time. And you know what they would have done? That's what they would have done. They'd be like, oh, God said I can't do this. Let me try that. There's something perverse in the human heart. We're never content. And if you say you can't have it, well, that's what we want. And so they sin. But in God's plan, that sin and all of the trouble that comes out of that first sin were for good, for many goods, and also for the highest good. And by the way, we are not the highest good. The purpose of all of creation is to sing the praise of Christ. Okay? That's the highest good. There are other goods along the way that we get to enjoy. Here's how John Piper puts the matter. Adam and Eve's purpose in sinning was the vain pursuit of pleasure through self-exalting autonomy. God's purpose in permitting their sin was to give his people the pleasure of seeing and savoring the glory of his grace in the inexpressible suffering and the triumphs of his son. Let me raise another important consideration consideration that is so central to our Christian faith, a consideration that we cannot forget when we're thinking about our faith. And that is this, the benefits of our life in Christ are not only for this life, but also for eternity. If This life is all that there is. If the end of this life is the end of the story, then Christians are actually fools. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let me explain this point because it's actually very important. Because there have been and there are people who call themselves Christians, but who have abandoned the teaching of Jesus and the apostles that there is a life after this life. There are people who want to have a this world only Christianity. Let me work around to explaining this the long way. First, let me say that for purely selfish reasons, being a Christian is a great bargain. There is a cost, a real cost to being a Christian. We take up our cross to follow Christ. We turn the other cheek. We repay evil with good. We give God 10% of our income. We set aside the first day of the week to worship God. We die to self so that we might live to Christ. There is a real cost to being a Christian. But being a Christian is also a great bargain. And by a great bargain, I mean that we get... Far more, far more than we give. We pay a little, but we get a, we get a lot. And I mean that in two ways. First, being a Christian is a great bargain in this life. There is lots of scientific data that show that an active Christian faith and regular church attendance extends your life. People who go to church live longer than those who do not go to church, which is why I think the CDC, in addition to recommending COVID shots, should recommend that all people go to church. Not because the government agency should promote religion, God forbid, but because a government agency should follow the science and promote public health. Going to church is healthy. It makes you live longer. But it's not only that. 
It also makes you happier. I mean, who wants to live longer if you're just going to be miserable? Scientific studies show that active Christians report being happier than people without a faith life. They report greater satisfaction, lower anxiety. They have better sex lives. And there is lots of data to support a connection between active Christian faith and regular church attendance with greater happiness. Anyone who follows the science and wants to promote human happiness and flourishing should tell people, go to church. There's no question about that. But that's only part of the story. And it's a part of the story that's so tiny that it actually almost makes no sense to talk about it. Because after this life, which will last, you know, about a hundred years, few of us will live longer than a hundred years, after this life that lasts about a hundred years, there will be eternity, forever, endless joy and pleasure ahead for those who are in Christ. Not only is the length and the duration of that joy inexpressibly longer than the joy of this life, there's going to be joy in this life, but there's going to be joy for eternity. But it's also the case that the intensity of the joy when we're with Christ will be inexpressibly greater than the joys of this life too. Because the joys that we know in our resurrected bodies in New Jerusalem will be joys that are not mixed with sorrows. Christmas is one of the most joyful times of the year for us. It's a time of family and feasting. It's a time of memories and wonder. But how often and for how many is Christmas a time of grief and loss? While you may look forward to a white Christmas, many people who have lost loved ones, who have had traumatic Experiences in childhood, they experience a blue Christmas. Because the joy that everyone else is enjoying, the joy that we see all around us and think that we should be enjoying, this is somehow missing from their life because of loss or because of trauma. It's real. The joys of this life are never unalloyed. But the joys of heaven... Won't be that way. The Bible tells us that every tear will be wiped away and there will be neither sickness nor death in that place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. Eternal joy, joy unmixed with grief, is the bonus of this Christian life. Yeah, it's great to live your life here and now as a Christian. Nothing wrong with that. But the hope of the church always has been not for this world alone but for the world to come. Beyond this life and the life that starts after this life is done, there is an eternity in the presence of God. And so you can ask, what kind of price would you put on that? How much suffering would you be willing to endure to have that prize? I've been watching the middle schoolers uh, in the track team here at Valley Christian School, Dr. Foster, our head of school, and Mr. Rossi, who's a graduate of our school, uh, are, are uh, coaching the track team, and they're pushing those kids hard. And I see those kids running up that hill, and running up that hill, and running up that hill, and they're dog-tired, and their legs hurt, and they're gasping for air, 
And I think it's the hardest thing that some of those kids have ever done. And they're doing it all for the prize that's offered for the bragging rights of winning at some track meet. And for those kids running up those hills again and again, they're making a calculation in their head. I mean, they don't have to be there. It's not required. They're calculating. Is this worth it? Is it worth all this hard work to reach this goal? And the kids who are sticking with the program are saying, yeah, it is worth it. The prize is worth the pain. So what's the prize of heaven worth? Jesus was pretty clear about the cost. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Paul, who was facing his own public execution, writes, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. What's eternity worth? Well, according to Jesus, it's worth the whole world. The best use that we could make of our time and our money and our effort and our attention is the pursuit of the kingdom of God. Better to have that than Anything this world can offer. That's what Jesus says. The most valuable object you could lay hold of in this life is following Jesus and having an eternity after this life with him in New Jerusalem. It's worth more than that $700 million super yacht that Vladimir Putin owns. You know that one with all the gold-plated bathroom fixtures? It's a nice boat. But if Putin truly were savvy, he would give it up and follow Jesus. What the Bible teaches us is that the great goal of all things in this universe is to bring praise to the glory of God's grace. God's grace is at its highest pitch in Christ dying on a cross for our sins. And mysteriously, God permitted our sin so that we would know the glory of God's grace. Each one of you are invited to spend eternity with God in inexpressible bliss. When we see Jesus, we are going to be so crazy happy. We're going to be so completely satisfied. We're going to be so overwhelmingly amazed. And we won't have just one glimpse. We're going to have all the time we need to linger and spend time with Jesus and to get to know him better and to enjoy his company. And all of it will be to the praise of his glorious grace. Have you made that bargain? Have you said, I'm going to follow Christ? I'm going to take up that cross? Have you given up every claim that this world has on you and said, I'm going to, I'm just going to trade all of that in because the prize is worth it. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and adore you. We praise you for your glorious grace. We praise you for making this world and designing this world and, and, and 
your amazing way. We thank you for sending Jesus to us so that we could learn more about you and to experience your gracious side. Lord, give us the faith to cling to you alone. May our hope and trust be in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please join me in confessing what it is that we believe as Christians using the